Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the 4.0 Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Scriven. We go live here every week at Tuesday at noon central. Also, uh, you know, you Welcome can listen everybody. to our podcast on any other major podcast player. Uh, so I'm here with Walker Reynolds, back from traveling this week. How are you doing, Walker? Ahoy. <clears throat> oh, we did it again. Sorry, that was me. All right, we're good. <laughs> so what's going on, man? It's good to be back. Really good. Yeah, dude, you've been uh, you've been like really doing a lot this year. Like, you know, I mean, our team, I mean, just to take the step from, you know, just our small little team that we started with last year to, to where we're at now, where we have like a little bit bigger small team, <laughs> uh, you know, to go from like three to six is like that's that's a big jump, you know? Yeah. So when we talked about this, I, I think I talked about it in a podcast, <clears throat> the last one I was on a couple of weeks ago or maybe three weeks ago, but like all businesses are built in two steps. So for those of you out there that want to, you know, come an integrator, start your own company, venture out on your own, more and more people are doing that. More and more people will do that. You know, you're going to build your business in two steps. So step one is, um, you know, it's the innovative step. <clears throat> your, your team, whether that's you and one other person, or it's just you needs, you operate um, incredibly agilely. Like you have to be able to shift gears on a day-to-day basis. You're going to wear a million hats and you're going to test lots of different ideas, right? So, oh, this, this worked, that didn't work, or this didn't work. Let's try something new tomorrow. Um, and so you're, the first year or so, you're just sort of proving what works, right? You're monetizing an idea. That's really what you're doing. And then once you figure out, once you have a list of things that work, you got the manual processes in places, you, you, you know, you're ready to start scaling on some level. Now it's system time. And the te- and oftentimes the team that has proved what works, mon- proves what you can monetize, it plays a, a much smaller role in when you're when you're ready to start hardening your systems and scaling your business. And that, well, that's where we're in right now. We're in that second phase. If you look at all the companies I've built, They've all been built in in those steps. Right. So, well, we had Josh, yeah. right? We brought Josh on. Yep. We had a system, time. systems ex- uh, executive assistant. Then we had a, Alan, who's the DTMA oh, systems guy, architect. Yep. And then we had Cheryl, who's like our business, uh, yeah, business strategist and uh, analyst. So, right. I mean, I was telling you before, I'm like, dude, all the things Cheryl says, I'm like, I agree with. It's just like I would have never, if you weren't here, to tell me to make me think about that, I, I would have probably thought about it myself. <laughs> so we, we got a great show this week. So uh, you guys will know what we should be doing is the fourth use case for the unified namespace. Um, but we're actually going to hit pause. We're going to do the fourth use case next week because I think the topic we needed to cut, discuss today is important before we finish our last two use cases. So today we're going to go over the unified namespace misconceptions and reality. Okay. Um, and I'm just going to sort of riff it, sort of common misconceptions. We're going to go over UNS like actually in detail. Um, and then I'm going to talk about some other things. So, but yeah. first we got, go ahead, Zach. Uh, welcome. I just wanted to say a shout out to Brian. Brian, we did, I do have your question in the backlog. It's going to be a bigger one and we, we, we may not get to it today. So I do wanted to address you though, because I, I did say we were going to get to your question, uh, but it's, it's going to take a little bit longer to get to. So we we have that in the backlog. So. Uh, we're also working on, and it's not set up yet, but I did reach out to Matt. We're going to have an email like that's going to be podcast at 4.0solutions.com to be able to send in your questions 
be able to write in um, is really more so like instead of like a basic question that may just get asked in Discord, hey, should I use this or that or, or you know, what specification is this Spark Plug Bleed supported? Right. Those simple questions are great for Discord. But if you're you want to write in and say like, hey, you know, here's my background. Here's what I'm trying to do. Explain the story, you know, like an email. That's what that's going to be for or, or a voice recording you can send in as well. So we can start fielding more um, deeper questions on on this podcast. Awesome. <clears throat> so I got a couple announcements, obviously, but um, sort of the way the show is going to go today is the in this first 15 minute segment, give or take. Um, I'm going to let you know what it is I did last week. Some really great conversations I had with some people while we were on our executive retreat, not just people in our team, but people we met all over the world who are in one way or another associated with digital transformation. It was kind of, it was kind of crazy. The number of people we met, um, at this resort, um, who were into digital transformation or you had some role in digital transformation. Um, and then, um, and then we're going to get into UNS misconceptions and reality and all the questions that we have listed. If we do get to the questions at the end are all UNS related. Okay. Uh, Number one, let's, you know, thanks to our sponsor, which is the Digital Factory Mastermind program at IOT.university. Um, 12 week accelerator program. Week 11 is tomorrow. So, step 11 review. There's only two more sessions left. So, for those of you that are in Mastermind who are going through the accelerator, you only got two more to go. Tomorrow is supply chain part three. Um, and Zach will be doing that session at, is it two o'clock central? Yep. Yep. Same time. Uh, Another thing, um, for those of you who are in the Dallas area, um, on May 5th at 6 o'clock, I'm going to be speaking to the IoT Texas group at the IoT Happy Hour. Uh, the name of my presentation is Digital Transformation is a Strategy. It's going to be at the Spring Hill Suites by Marriott um, in Dallas Richardson over the um, in the Richards University, Richardson University area. Uh, you can find the invite on Meetup. I think Zach Zach will put the link in the description if you guys want to come to that presentation. I think I'm speaking for like an hour or maybe a little longer, and then it's just sort of like a meet and greet thing for another 90 minutes. Um, and it, you know, I think uh, I'm going to be buying a drink for everybody who's there. I only just found out about that. Um, the the organizer of this the IoT Texas group they he was like, hey, if you really want to, you can buy a drink for everybody. So that's really nice of them to offer offer that up for me. So anyway, if you're in the Dallas area, May 5th, 6 p.m., um, IOT happy hour at Spring Hill Suites through the IOT Texas group. Um, and we'll we'll include the link on Meetup uh, in the description here. Um, and then the last announcement is... Um, That's going to be pretty sick. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. It's uh, like an informal thing. It's all manufacturers, uh, integrators. So uh, in person. Yeah, it's all in person. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I saw the last presentation, they do one every month. Um, and they reached out and asked if I'd be willing. Oh, there's a couple of people from our community and mentorship program. I recognize that are registered for that event. Ah, cool. Rocking. Um, so maybe that's where it came from. They, the people who had already gone said, Hey, you should have this guy come talk. So, and then last thing, Michael Brown, you guys should all know Michael Brown from Amazon web services. Well, he's not with AWS anymore. He went to an AWS partner. So uh, he announced on LinkedIn that he's now the director of architecture and innovation at RTS. That's Resolve Tech Solutions. Um, Resolve Tech Solutions is an AWS partner that does uh, is it platform services or service provider. They're a service provider for AWS. So like if you're a really big AWS user 
RTS is like your managed services provider. And Michael is the director of architecture and innovation now. And, and um, so while he's still closely associated with AWS, he's getting an opportunity now to take the architectures he designs with these partners and now uh, work with teams to help implement them, which is something he was looking to do. Um, it's a huge coup for RTS. Michael Brown is, in my opinion, the, the best architect that Amazon uh, had. Um, and obviously he's still supporting the AWS infrastructure, but he's done some really, really cool stuff. So, um, all right, with that announcements over. So let's talk about well, what, new ahead. members, new members. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Cause we added this segment last week where we're going to introduce the new members, people that have joined discord, people that join our mentorship or mastermind program, not as many as did last week. And then people that have introduced themselves in the discord. Um, so, um, Antonio Martin joined the Entergy 4.0 Mentorship Program. Welcome. Uh, David McGraw joined Digital Factory Mastermind Program. Welcome, David. And Anthony Lincoln joined the Industry 4.0 Mentorship Program. So welcome, Anthony. And we had a handful of people introduce themselves in the, uh, in the Discord server. So real quick on David McGraw. <clears throat> hey, all My name is David McGraw, and I'm excited to be joining y'all for the journey. I work for a consulting firm in our manufacturing practice and I'm responsible for the IIoT and AIML overlay. I've worked at Hitachi in a similar role prior to that, co-founding a software company, Predicto, as one of the first predictive maintenance platforms back in 2012, has since been acquired by United and Raytheon Technologies. Interesting. One of my favorite in it quotes is, innovation at the crossroads of hoodie and suit. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, it resonates with me because I've uh, until recently I've always been a hoodie, but... Don't fret because under this stupid suit is a still a hoodie. <laughs> well, wait, you're 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 reading all of these on the podcast? We may not. Yeah, so this there's a lot more. Of this. this <laughs> all right, we'll pick a few. We'll pick three. How about that? Well, you read yeah. one, and I'll pick one more. Yeah, and uh, real quick, David McGraw. He is. Um, he has a like a handful of people who are joining mentorship on his team. That's so true, David, yeah. David's from a an IT consultancy group that we've been uh, talking to. They got a really cool team, um, and he's he has uh, I think five people are joining mentorship from his his team. And then uh, I'll do uh, let's do Aaron um, down below. Hey folks, I'm a 29 year old senior control engineer from US, mostly S7 Cymatic TIA. I signed up for PE control systems exam in October, so I'm going to be studying my ass off soon. My current big career goal is to do MS PhD in my 30s and get an I4.0 related corporate research scientist role after I stumbled upon this place looking for servers tagged with I-4.0. I own a humble server of about 100 friends, uh, hoping to lurk a bit to soak my brain and maybe learn a thing or two from y'all. And then uh, let's do the exotic. Hello, my name is Vasilis. I'm from Greece. I'm an undergraduate automation engineer uh, student in Greece. My new position is PLC and all the new and old industry in this field. Welcome to everybody. There's a there's about eight other ones in there that we didn't read, but yeah. Um, so join the Discord server, introduce yourself here, and and have a chance to be featured as one of the new community members on next week's live podcast. Awesome. Uh, all right, so let's talk about last week. So last week we I was at an on an executive retreat. So a couple of times a year, uh, myself and the executive leadership team, we go somewhere so that we can just do strategy meetings all week long. Um, we measure our progress based on, you know, our last strategy session. We have a running list of things that we want to execute. 
then we go on these resorts. It's, it, you know, we, this time we went to Cozumel and we were at, uh, the Cozumel palace, I think is where we were at, uh, which is like all inclusive place. And we just, you know, we, we do, uh, organic and formal meetings. And then we do a debrief at the end. And, um, in those sessions, we're basically looking at, you know, what, what was our, what were our goals? Our last resort, uh, meeting, uh, uh, retreat was in early January and we want our cruise that time, which I don't recommend doing. I love cruises, but I don't recommend doing meetings on a cruise. Cause when you're out sitting in a conference room on a boat, that's moving around, it's not cool. Um, but the, we basically compared, measured our success, you know, ha- how have things been going over the last four months? Um, and then we formulated our strategy for the rest of the year. Um, but that's not the important part. The important part is I had an opportunity to meet. There were three or there were three groups of people that we met just randomly. Okay. Um, at this resort. So number one, I met an executive at Honeywell who, um, who, when we were talking about what we do, he was like, oh, yeah, we, you know, um, we'd love to get you guys involved in, in well, we're really struggling uh, with transforming our business. It, you know, Honeywell's an OEM and distributor, and, and we're really struggling transforming our business. And when I was talking about, um, you know, hey, the importance of making products that get better after your clients buy them, you know, that really resonated with him. You know, and, and he said, listen, you know, we, you know, we, th- there's the old way of thinking and there's a new way of thinking. And as a large organization, we're really struggling. Right. And so I had a great conversation with him, um, you know, and we'll at the end of the day, we'll, you know, probably and we'll probably work with Honeywell in some way, shape or form and help craft their OEM strategy. Right. The big one was oh, then the second one was I met a, I actually met a girl who lives here in Dallas. She uh um, she and her husband, we ran into, we we're just like at the pool, you know, our whole group was there and she's the director of digital transformation for her company. And, um, and I asked her, how did you even get into that? And she said, you know, I just developed a reputation as being a problem solver and they needed a director of digital transformation. She has no background in digital transformation, but she definitely understands the value. Right. Um, and, she definitely understands the value and she's, you know, she's, a uh, uh, her background's like in project management. And so one of the things I said to her was like, you know, after we were talking, I said, you know, you really should join our mastermind program. And I actually said to her, you know, uh, we'll, we'll front the cost for you, you know, just go in, let, let me, uh, let me front the cost for you to join mastermind. This is a really young, um, probably in her late twenties at the most, you know, works for a relatively small company. And it was an opportunity in my head, like, hey, let's, you know, let's do, you know, let's, let's help craft this, this, uh, this journey for them. Right. And then the last one is I met two executives from McKinsey. So you guys are going to love this, <laughs> this conversation. So were they subscribers? Uh, the, uh, the one, one person knew who I was. Yeah. In fact, that's how they, the guy walked up to me and, and said something, but he's like, oh, you're that. You know, you're that 4.0 solutions guy. Um, well, he didn't say 4.0 solutions. He goes, you're that YouTube guy is what he said. And um, he goes, I've seen your videos passed around our company. The the lady or the other person wasn't, uh, the lady wasn't, she was on the IT side. They were both executives. He's on the OT side. She's on the IT side for McKinsey. And we probably talked for about an hour. And um, And here's how the conversation went. 
um, you know, you guys, me, this is me to them. Uh, you guys are part of the problem, you know? And, you know, I said, here are three things that stand out with McKinsey. I said, I come, be, we've come behind you guys all the time. Three things that stand out. Number one, you guys charge, you know, a million dollars a month for what you should be charging $50,000 a month for. Right. So that's what McKinsey, I mean, and by the way, working with McKinsey costs that, that amount of money. It's like a million dollars a month. Right. I said, you're charging a million dollars a month for what you should be charging 50,000 a month for. All right. Number two, 98, you know, we've analyzed. Uh, so I've, I've seen a lot of their documents that they write. So their roadmaps that they write, which are really just lists of use cases, basically. Um, they call it a digital transformation roadmap, but that's not really what it is. I said, you know, your documents are like 98% congruent. Like if I take the document from customer A and I compare it to document from customer B, it's 98% the same across all these clients. And they started laughing when I said that, you know, and, and the guy, he totally agreed. She was, she played, played uh, things closer to the vest right up until I said this thing. I said, you know, McKinsey has to understand that they're in trouble. Like, as an organization, they must understand that the industry is becoming more and more educated about how the fourth industrial revolution approaching problems in the fourth industrial revolution is different than the way we approach problems during the third industrial revolution. McKinsey's real claim to fame is sort of really that period um, between 2000 and 2010 right after TCP IP won, you know, won the protocol wars. What, were they, good, what were they good at then? Really, I, I, like IT infrastructure upgrades. Like, think about it. Um, most manufacturers, you know, whether they're enterprise class or whether mom and pops, really didn't have IT infrastructure, right? You had a data, a data center with some switches. Well, actually, you didn't have a data center. You had a closet with some switches, and, and that's PCs. Yeah. And some cables and, and, you know, and a phone drop that went to your offices and that's it. You know, your, your manufacturing facility didn't have network infrastructure that wasn't on people's radars. I mean, think about it when slick five Oh threes and five Oh fours were the standard data highway plus was yeah, your serial. Yeah. Data highway plus was your plant floor infrastructure. And that was somebody else's problem. So McKinsey really, when they came in, that, that was when they were evaluating organizations and they really started with like infrastructure upgrade. And then they moved into business intelligence on the IT side, which they're really good at. Then they started selling ITOT convergence, which they fucking suck at. Okay. So when they started doing ITOT convergence, they, and, and, and what's the problem? McKinsey doesn't have a lot of engineers who are with plant floor expertise, yes. right? They don't understand the challenges you face on the plant floor. We're going to talk a lot about that with the UNS today. So, um, but anyway, that conversation was great. And, and, and let me say this. What'd they say? They agreed. They agreed uh, that they already knew what I was telling them. It was crazy. They already knew. But the problem is, is that they're what McKinsey does, right? McKinsey is so ingrained in the, uh, the current, if you guys look at the video, um, how is industry changing part one, there was a guy who said, Hey, where's part two and part three part two's coming. Okay. Um, but if you watch that video, how industry is changing part one, McKinsey is ingrained in that infrastructure. 
Okay, it, the the OEM distributor systems integrator relationship structure. Okay, and it's really hard to make the leap to make the jump to being an agnostic provider who focuses on strategy and solution over a solution centric provider who is focused on um, use case implementation after use case implementation. Right. So anyway, three great conversations that we had. And by the way, John Patanian, yes, McKinsey makes very, very beautiful PowerPoints. This is part of the reason, um, you know, most people find out when I say we don't allow PowerPoints in our organization. In fact, it's grounds for termination because all, all a PowerPoint presentation does is show you that you're good at making a PowerPoint presentation. How many beautiful PowerPoint presentations have you seen that you learned absolutely nothing from? When, when, when I say that, when we were in the DTMA like a couple, couple of weeks ago with Alan, I was like, but no one has actually ever tested that theory. <laughs> right. But no one's, yeah, no one's tried. To, <laughs> but it's, it, it, it makes a point. All right. And then la last thing before we get into UNS misconceptions and reality, I want to talk about, um, uh, I want to I respond to... Um, you know, one of our biggest critics out there who's Alistair Gilchrist. Which uh, I, love, I love Alistair, by the way. So let me say this. Um, we had this big discussion this morning talking to my team. And, you know, Alistair Gilchrist, if you guys don't know who he is, he's a prolific author. Um, I think he's a consultant now, but he, you know, he's written lots of books on IT protocols. And but he wrote the book on Industry 4.0. He wrote the actual book. OK, Um Yes, Annabelle Velarde. Yes, that's why I only use OneNote and not PowerPoints. Yes, and everyone in our organization uses OneNote and not PowerPoints. Um, so he, you know, if you guys you guys can look up Alistair Gilchrist. I think he lives in Thailand now. He was on the podcast a couple of months ago. Uh, I'd love to invite him back because I talked a little bit too much in that podcast. I did a follow up video. You know, hey, listen, I'm not a professional interviewer. I'm an engineer. You know, but I I feel like Alistair should. If he if he disagrees with anything we should say or anything we say, anything about our strategies, he's you know, he should have a right. The guy has earned the right to come on here and criticize us. So because he you know, he's he's contributed a lot to our industry, but he's been incredibly critical. Um, and uh, and honestly and honestly, um, kind of unfair. So I was talking to my team earlier before this and I said, you know, I came back from the retreat and there apparently Alistair has gone on LinkedIn and attacked people, members of our community. He, you know, he took some pot shots at Zach and stuff um, on YouTube comments. <clears throat> and in general, you should never respond to trolls. Right. I mean, obviously, you're just putting fuel on the fire. And my team said that, hey, Walker, you just you really shouldn't just comment about anything that uh, Alistair has had to say. And that's not true. OK, I have a responsibility to respond to any criticism that legitimate thought leaders in our industry have about our architecture uh, or the, the methodologies that we teach or whatever. And here's why. Here's why. You guys will remember uh, John Rinaldi, you know, the guy from Real-Time Automation. He does a, a newsletter, super, super highly respected guy. He sits on the um, OPCUA users group. Like, I mean, there are very few people in our industry who are more credentialed, more has more experience, more successes than a guy like John Rinaldi, okay? And years ago, I met, I, uh, maybe three or four years ago, I ran into John Rinaldi at, um, 
he he wrote a newsletter and in his newsletter he said you know mqtt is not the future of industrial automation and he wrote a, this whole piece about how it's really opc ua and mqtt is not an industrial protocol and all this stuff so i flew out to orlando for a for a um i think it was the arc show um i didn't know john was going to be there but i ran into him and john and i and i said hey john you know you have a minute i want to talk to you about your newsletter and we sat down and we had a whole conversation about MQTT and it was it was heated. I mean, it was back and forth. You know, it was a heated discussion, but respectful. You know what I mean? I respect him. He respected me. And I said to him, John, John, you are a really smart guy and you're very accomplished and you have tons of experience on the plant floor. I have absolutely no doubt you will come around. I said, you will connect the dots the same way I did and you will come around. And just a couple years later, he did a public Mia culpa on LinkedIn. He uh, came to one of our study groups during the Industry 4.0 study group on a Saturday morning, sat through a presentation by Arlen Nipper, and then he wrote in the same newsletter a couple of years later. He talked about the benefits of MQTT as your underlying industrial yeah, protocol. Mia culpa. Right. Another Mia culpa gave us a shout out about the way we explain it and stuff. That was the that conversation that his his resolution coming around could not have happened if he and I didn't engage. Right. I mean, he may have come around. Right. But it, I certainly we sped it up. Right. I, I shined a flashlight on it in that conversation. We we engaged pub respectfully. Alistair Gilchrist, for those of you who don't follow the comments closely, he, he's been highly critical. He doesn't ever call out anything specific. He's really it's just ad hominem attack stuff. You know, he in in a in the video last week, he you know, he basically said, what a load of waffles, just like Walker, you talk a lot and deliver nothing. Well, that's not a criticism. That's not a criticism of, OK, here is something you said in the video. And I and I had this experience where that yeah. that doesn't play out. So let me let me say that this kind of stuff happens. Right. You know. So what I want to do is. Um, I want to the reason I'm chiming in here is because Alistair is no longer personally attacking me, which I'm OK with. But he's attacked attacked members of the community purely ad hominem. And I know he's watching this video right now. He'll watch this and he may, you know, take. Yeah, the way he responded to Mario's post was way out of bounds. It, and by the way, part of the reason I'm here is is because, you know, Mario is a member of our community. I have a responsibility to, to speak for the community. And that's what I'm doing right now. So let me say this. I have no problem. If Alistair has a problem with the technical, any of the technical elements that we're talking about, um, I, I want to hear about that. Okay. And, and I'm, I'm inviting Alistair to come on the podcast and I will shut up for 45 minutes. You can, Alistair can talk on the podcast for 45 consecutive minutes without me saying anything. As long as you give me 15 minutes at the end to rebut. I'm inviting Alistair to come on here. Now, let me say this. I'll ruin your career. Everything that you have done, Alistair, through up to this point, I will show anyone who trusts your judgment that you're wrong. You're flat out wrong. Okay. Um, I hope that we have mutual respect. Like I have mutual respect for Alistair. I don't agree with everything that's in his book. Um, I, but I, his book on industry 4.0 is, I, in my opinion, is a must read, but anyone in our community who reads his book is going to come to the same conclusions and is going to see the same gaps in some of his assumptions, right? 
Why? Because we shine a flashlight on those gaps. Fun. And one last thing, Zach, I want to say, I want to finish this. I, if Alistair has a criticism of our architecture, technology, strategies, I am inviting Alistair to come back on the podcast and I won't interrupt you for 45 minutes. I'll introduce and you can present for 45 minutes all the reasons why you think that all we do is shovel loads of waffles because that's what you said. What a load of waffles. Just like Walker, you talk a lot and deliver nothing. You say this. I, I have, was the only one on the podcast, though. So who else was going to talk if I wasn't? Right. I mean, well, let me say. Let me say this. I I have made more vice presidents. There are there are there are dozens of people on this podcast right now who have been promoted multiple levels in their organization because of the results delivered from our strategies. Okay, from our technology. The any any person who is anyone in the industry who comes in and does an actual deep dive asks Socratic questions. Someone had made a comment, you know, Walker, I love your Socratic approach. The Socratic approach to solving problems is through asking questions, right? You ask questions, you get answers, you ask more questions. That's the Socratic approach. It is not the Socratic approach to go on a YouTube channel and say, what a load of waffles. Just like Walker, you talk a lot and deliver nothing. That's Bush League. That's what stupid people do. I don't read the books of people who comment like that, okay? And you're not going to be able to find comments of me saying those things. So honestly, Alistair, you should be ashamed at your conduct. You should be ashamed. And it, and, it, and it makes our whole industry look bad when you act the way you do. When I rip Rockwell a new asshole, okay? When I rip Rockwell a new ass, I give specific reasons. And I offer for Rockwell to come on and defend themselves. And you know what? They don't do anything. They don't respond. You know why? Because they know how stupid they'll look. They know they know the problems with the connected enterprise. They know what their business strategy is. They know that they don't give a shit if uh, factory factory talk MES is not the best MES solution for their customer. They only give a fuck <laughs> that you buy it. That's it. That's all they care about. They know that. So they're not going to come on the podcast and defend themselves because they know I'm going to back them into that corner and there's no lie that they can come up with. They don't control the message there. When I rip Siemens or when I rip uh, Emerson or uh, any company, I give exact problems with the way that they approach solutions, the specific technical failings. Okay. When I give inductive automation a hard time about, you know, this marketing venture or that marketing venture. I'm talking about specific technical issues. I'm not telling them that that's a load of waffles and that they talk a lot and deliver nothing. So please stop wasting our time. Stop wasting the community's time. Come on the podcast to do a 45 minute presentation. Show us where we're wrong and let's find a solution somewhere in the middle. But I suspect, you know, you can't do that. And here's why you're an IT guy. Okay. You you're you're an IT guy who has probably realized that digital transformation happens from the plant floor up and you don't have enough plant floor experience to speak knowledgeably about how to unlock potential in organizations using technology. You can you can speak knowledgeably on the IT side, but you can't speak knowledgeably on the OT side. And your fucking attitude and the way that you comment, the way that you comment in these videos is part and parcel 
of the attitude that operational technology people have to deal with from IT professionals every fucking day. Okay. And that is the absolute truth. And let me just say this. There is zero chance that he will come on this podcast and do that 45 minute presentation. And that's all you got to know. All right. Hopefully that nips that in the bud. Okay. Um, and, and, but let me disqualify here. I have nothing but the utmost respect for Alice Dale Gilchrist as a technical resource. And I love many of his books, but I'm not going and I'm not going and shit. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going and shitting on Alistair. He's the one who's taking these pot shots and I'm defending our team. Right. Uh, and he'll come around. He'll come around. All right. Here we go. Let's talk about UNS misconceptions. Um, uh, and mi misconceptions and reality. Okay. All right. Let me, let me, are there any comments I got to answer to? No, uh, no. Ad yes. hominem is log logical fallacy. All right, cool. All right, so let's go over the unified namespace misconceptions and reality, okay? Um, so what is the unified namespace? Let's start. This is something we don't talk about publicly, okay? So the UNS is the structure and the of your business and all of the events in one place. So not a database, but an infrastructure where you can access the structure and the events of your business. Structure is the semantic hierarchy so that I know where to go. Um, think of a Windows file share, right? If I go to Windows Explorer and I want to go find a file, right? I know what to navigate to in order to get the, the that file that I care about. The difference is, is that file is, is uh, it's a wholly unique thing. It's not a, it's not a topic namespace. It's not a, it's not a tag with a value. It's a file that I can open. Okay. The structure of a unified namespace is very much like a file share. Okay. It just happens to be a topic namespace. What does that mean? It means that even the folders that in, in that file share ha can have a value. Okay. So the folder can be both a store and a name of a value that has a value associated with it. Okay. So UNS is the structure of your business in all of the events. We use ISA 95 to structure that data. And then the topic namespaces give you all the events um, in your unified namespace. Okay. Number two, it is a single source of truth for all data and information of the business. A very important distinction is that if I look at a unified namespace where I have enterprise site, area, line, cell, and inside my cell, I have two, just two values. I have uh, the temperature in that cell and I have the OEE calculation. If I go and I look and I see temperature and OEE and the OEE calculation changed an hour ago and the temperature is changing 30 times per second because it's, you know, it's changing every two hertz or whatever it is, um, then the, the, I can, I can always, if I monitor those two values, I can always know what the OEE calculation was, was for every one of the temperature changes. Okay. And that we call that data normalization, which I'll get to here in a second. Number three, the unified namespace is the place where the current state of your business lives. Okay. Now, what is the state of the business? It's all of the values of all of the attributes at this exact moment. 
So if I wanted to know what work order is running on line one, what the OEE calculation is on line one, what work order is running on line three, what is the schedule for area A, what it, at this exact moment, the operator that's running on line one, the operator that's running on line two, okay, the supervisor in charge in area C, the current state is the snapshot right now. If I wanted to look and see uh, what is the work in progress or the sales funnel or the the total uh, the total um, um, production load of SKU A, and I wanted to take a snapshot so that I could compare all the things on the plant floor with the current state of the IT business. I can do that in the unified namespace. It's the current state. Okay. Number four, it's the hub through which the smart things in your business communicate with one another. So not only is the unified namespace, the structure of the business and all the events and the current state of the business and the single source of truth that we call it the system of ownership, right? Or the architecture of ownership, but it's also the hub through which all the smart things communicate with one another. What is a smart thing? A smart thing has intelligence on it and it has communications capability. So that is, and what is smart? Smart means it can tell you something about itself, okay? And it can communicate. That's all, all a smart thing is. But the unified namespace is the hub through which they all talk to one another, okay? And number five, it's the architectural foundation of your industry 4.0 and digital transformation initiative, right? Your digital, the way you execute your digital strategy is by building a unified namespace, plugging applications into the unified namespace and converting data into information, unlocking potential. And you can, can you extend that unified namespace as you come up with new problems to solve. So if the problem I'm trying to solve is, I wanna know, overall equipment effectiveness using the same calculation across every production line in my organization, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take an engine that plugs into my unified namespace and consumes things like line state, in-feed out count, out-feed count, waste count, standard rates on all of those assets, consumes, calculates, and then publishes the OEE value back to each of those lines across the enterprise. That is a problem I'm trying to solve. And then once I solve that problem, I may want to solve a new problem, which would be something like, I want to predict future OEE calculations based on um, which SKU I'm running, um, or I want to predict how long my changeover will take, or I want to I want to capture how long my changeover will take when I go between um, product SKU A and SKU B on, on the, in this area of my organization. Then my smart thing plugs into my unified namespace, consumes the data or the, and the OEE calculation, obviously, post-processes, and then publishes the result back into the unified namespace to display in a dashboard or for some other system to consume. Okay. The, one of the values of the unified namespace is that it's omniscient and omnipresent. Okay. Now, I can tell you this. There are people who are very critical of UNS, very few. Anybody who sees sees it in work in pro, uh, in practice goes, whoa. <laughs> Anybody who sees it in practice is like, why didn't we think of this? 
I didn't even know that technology existed. How do you solve this problem? Oh, we do it that way, right? Um, anybody who's really critical of the UNS is shitting their pants now because this is not the stuff we talk about publicly. This is the stuff we teach at IoT.university. This is the stuff we teach in mentorship. This is the stuff we teach in mastermind. But the people who don't get a chance to see this level of detail, they're shitting themselves right now, just after this 10-minute discussion. Why? Well, because they're doing linear point-to-point -point integration to solve every problem. Okay? So they're connecting to data. The first thing that they do is acquire data from its original source whenever they're solving some use case problem, right? And that's why what you'll have is, you know, five, six, seven, eight, 12 different systems polling your PLCs. And one of the first things the controls engineer says is we, we have too many requests coming into our PLC for data, right? The reason why is because you're not using a concept like a unified namespace to acquire that data just one time, all of it, right? And, and put it in a place for consumers to consume it from, okay? Now, some people start, let's use an OPC server to do that, right? So I'm gonna use one Kepler instance. Here's the problem. You don't write, you don't, unless you're going to build a namespace inside of an OPC server that is uh, individual tags, I'm going to go put individual tags in there for me to write back to. You can't do that. Okay, that technology doesn't, the, the, techno, the OPC UA standard doesn't support you being able to write to a holding attribute, let's say. Now, you can use smart tags. There are some workarounds but they're all deterministic. That is, I have to know the values I want to write in order for me to be able to write them, okay? All right. Um, I'm going to get to Blazo Fatso. Uh, Blazo Fatso, I'll answer your question here in a second under misconception about unified namespace. His question is, how are data saved in the UNS? In other words, do we store data in a server and push them to the UNS? I'll answer that question and part of the misconception. So why do you need a unified namespace? Okay, so what is the reason you need it? If you work on the plant floor, if you're if you're a person who is tasked with acquiring data, creating information, and generating value on the plant floor, and and you're primarily focused with improving operations because that's where business happens in manufacturing, then you already know the answer. You already know the answer to this. You already know why you need a UNS. That's why. The people this resonates with are the people who work on the plant floor to start with, okay? They're the ones who are going, holy shit, you mean I can cut my integration time? I can have shorter time to value? I can have all the data that I need across my entire operation in one location? And then I can just transmit it to a higher location and IT won't fuck with me? You mean to tell me I can do that? They're going to go, hell yeah. If you're an operations person, if you work on the plant floor, you already know why the UNI unified namespace is valuable, okay? This is for the IT people who don't understand it, okay? So why is it important? Number one, IT is tasked, all of them have data science teams, use machine learning to predict failures, right? They'll say, we need you to use machine learning to predict failures. So the person who tasked you with that, the CEO or the chief technical officer, has never written a linear regression in their entire life. They don't know what data science is. They don't know how to, how to scrub data, store data, then model data, 
and then pick an algorithm that's going to look at your value X, look at the failure, and then uh, predict a likely outcome Y for every value X, and then train that model over time, retrain that model and deploy. They don't know how that works. You know what the number one challenge in data sciences in, in specifically machine learning, predicting failures, normalization of data. What is normalization? It's how do I take, if, if, if a low OEE calculation or a low, let's say a low quality number is, if, if, there, if a low quality number is my failure trigger, anything under 90%, how do I take, and that number is only calculated once every five minutes or once every 60 seconds, and I want to compare that to a process value on a machine so that if I see a pattern in a process value that is going to result in a lower quality value so that I can say this pattern equals that bad outcome, okay? The first thing I have to do when before I train my model is line up those calculations so that every transition of that process value has an OEE calculation associated with it. That's called scrubbing data. We call that normalization prior to um, storing the data. So number one, unified namespace solves normalization. Why? Because unified namespace is current state. So I can always compare if, if my process value is changing 60 times per second and my OEE calculation is changing once every five minutes, every time my process value changes, all I have to do is quickly grab the value from the OEE. Boom, boom, boom. E nice and clean. Same, same infrastructure. Okay, so number one, normalization. Number two, time to value. With unified namespace, once you create a unified namespace infrastructure, all solutions that you build are nothing more than a, an extension of that unified namespace. That's why we talk about edge-driven report by exception lightweight. The reason we're MQTT fans, and we're not going to get into all the MQTT stuff here, but the reason we use MQTT for our unified namespace is because we can extend the broker namespace just by publishing to the broker namespace. I don't have to go and engineer it. All I have to do is say, this new value is going to this location, send it every time it changes. Okay? Time to value is super short. This is why every integrator loses to us because we use this architecture, okay? Number three, agility. Let's say that I want I, I, I have a new use case and, um, or I, I want to modify an existing use case. Just by changing the values that I'm going to publish to the unified namespace, I can quickly change my infrastructure without having to go re-engineer my infrastructure. So that is, if initially one of the smart things was publishing four values to the unified namespace, and now we're only going to publish three, we, we decided the fourth attribute is not important. Let's say it's, uh, let's say it's uh, relative humidity, right? We, we don't really care about relative humidity anymore. We're not going to publish it. All I have to do is just continue to publish the, the other three that matter, and the last value, as long as it's retained, that re relative humidity, you'll see the last time that relative humidity was published there. I can, I can, using agility, I can remain agile, and I can reduce the attributes I'm going to publish by one without having to make any server-side changes. Okay? Uh, number four, security. Everything is edge-driven. It's a report by exception. It's lightweight. The edge-driven is the security component. The smart thing out there only needs to have permission to talk up into the infrastructure. You don't have to open up any inbound communications. You don't have to make a request to the smart thing. You just tell the smart thing to publish. 
and therefore I don't have to open any inbound ports. The, the Purdue security model, if you guys go to ISA 95 part one and you look at the M, you know, MOM um, stack, right? Yeah, level zero to level four and you go to look up the Purdue security model. The Purdue security model was created simply because everything had to pull down to the plant floor to get its data. And so they wanted to make it as human as hard as possible for some intruder who's up there to who's not permitted to talk down to 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 get to your equipment. We eliminate the need for that by using edge-driven technology. There's no Purdue is obsolete. It becomes obsolete overnight, which means BombGuard you don't need to use anymore. You don't have to use any of these jump servers to access your infrastructure. All you do is you connect to the infrastructure at L4 that is showing you current state at L0, okay? And L4 doesn't have to have permission to talk to L0. L0's gotta have permission to talk to L4. And then last is scalability. I can create a unified namespace on a production line, okay? And then I can publish that whole namespace to an area namespace. So now I have multiple production lines publishing to an area. I can have multiple areas publishing to a site. I can have multiple sites publishing to an enterprise. Now, that's a really, that's a heavyweight way of doing it. You wouldn't do it that way. But you, you're, you're never going to have, you may not have a unified namespace on every production line. But you, and you may not have one at every area, but you're certainly going to have one at every site. And, and the way that we architect is we create the UNS at site A, while another team is creating the unified namespace at site B and another team's creating it at site C. And then when they're all done, they all point to enterprise A and they all publish up into enterprise A. And now your data science team's got everything. Okay. Scalability. All right. So uh, that is unified namespace and why it's important. Okay. Let's talk about misconceptions. So probably, yes, uh, Paulo Sullivan. Real quick. Uh, so is it fair to say Purdue is out, but ISA 95 is still a great idea for data structure, right? Yes. ISA 95 part two, which gives you your uh, your semantic hierarchy, I, enterprise site area line cell in, in a nutshell. Uh, ISA 95 part one is out. I mean, I mean, it, there's there's little in the part one standard that I think is going to hold over into um, IIoT infrastructures. In fact, I don't think there's anything in there that we use at all. But we do use the ISN 95 Part 2 standard to create the hierarchy of the namespace. Okay. Why do we do that? This is a really important question. It's one of the misconceptions. And the answer is because that's how ERP systems are built. So ERP systems use ISN 95 Part 2 to structure the master data model of your business data. So while all we're really doing is creating an abstraction for industrial data so we can map the two together, okay? Um, okay. Uh, yes, Annabelle Velarde. This is a good, really good question here, okay? Uh, let me go back. Mike, Michael Brown made a comment. He asked a question. He said, hey, Walker is, I think, I don't know if he's directed it to me, but he said it to someone. He said, oh, this one or... Uh, no, we're mutually exclusive data lake and UNS. So I want to talk about Annabelle Velarde's message. Oh, okay. well, Michael Brown initially said, he asked the question is 
UNS and a data lake mutually exclusive, or they don't have to be mutually exclusive. He's exactly right. Okay. The unified namespace is the structure that the data lake, the, the, the enterprise relational or the, the entity relational diagram is built on. So you can take a UNS and you can literally create a table hierarchy if you build SQL tables you and you know what your foreign keys are, right? So the, the foreign key from an area is to the site table and the foreign key for a site is to the enterprise table, right? The data lake, the data lake just takes the structure of the UNS and we use Kafka to do this. So Annabelle is the one who brought this up. We use Kafka to stream the structure and the events into a data lake so that we can use um, insert uh, uh, data optimization time series optimization uh, through Kafka, okay? And Annabelle said this, if I need to replay changes to the UNS in, through time, is it fair to say that a use case for event stores like Kafka? Absolutely, it's exactly how we do it. But the way that we replay it is from the data lake, generally. We replay it from the data lake, okay? That's a great question, Annabelle. By the way, the fat, just, just by virtue of you asking that question, tells me that you have a much higher level understanding of this architecture than the average person does. Okay. Did you get uh, Mark Ritchie's question? Mark Ritchie, uh, when the need for a blend of flat MQTT and Sparkplug B occurs, does one format become the default or are both being updated with data conversions from other data's format? Flat MQTT node consuming? No. Um, so the answer is it could be that way, but that's, you know, you'll, that's a lot of work. Um, to have it go in both directions so that you would always have flat in the Sparkbook B namespace and you always have the SPB Spark, uh, namespace in the flat hierarchy. Generally, we go from flat to Sparkplug B. So flat will be within the namespace, right? So any Spark, for those of you that don't screw with MQTT that much, Sparkplug B data um, namespaces, they, they have a one common root node and that is SPBV1.2, whatever, whatever the, the version is. So if I'm publishing a Sparkplug B version 1.0 topic namespace, all the nodes, okay? So if I've got um, f a thousand smart things publishing into Sparkplug B, the root node is going to be SPBV1.0, and then you'll have all your nodes in there, okay? The flat MQTT is going to be whatever root node you give it. So if I if I say I want you to if you don't give it any root node the originating the first folder in the hierarchy is going to be the root node. So if I say the it's going I want you to publish enterprise forward slash um, site and then the locate and then comma value and that value would be Dallas. What I'm going to have in flat MQTT is a folder called enterprise and then a topic called site with the value Dallas. So the first folder is that root node in flat. And then what we do is using an IoT protocol, we will map the enterprise site into a Sparkplug B um, namespace using one of the smart Sparkplug B nodes, right? And which would be Michael Brown, what Walker said. Um, uh, Blazo, I still have your question pinned. <laughs> uh, Blazo, um, what was the question? Yeah, it, was, it came in from earlier. How are data saved in the UNS? In, in other words, how do we store data in a server and push them into the UNS? It's a great question. So um, depends on which level of the organization. So if you look, there's a big sugar water manufacturer that we've been doing this with in Europe. 
um, for the last two years or whatever. And it's actually historized, stored in two places. So the only thing you're ever going to see in the unified namespace at any given time is the current state right now. So assuming we say we want to retain every value. So if we're using MQTT brokers, assuming we want to retain every value with the retain flag is high and our QoS is two. So that is send it to everybody. Okay. Uh, that is if I log in, if I log, if I connect to the broker after a value has been sent, but I'm subscribing to that value, you're going to send me the last value. That's if I do the, the high quality service. Uh, and I say retain every value. The broker is always going to be able to show you, the unified namespace will always be able to show you right now. Okay, Even if I just connected to it just a moment ago, and there's been no events that have happened since I connected, what I'm going to do is get the last event. Okay, And I'll see the last structure and events. What we do is we'll connect the historian to the unified namespace, and the historian will store all the data in time series. Generally, we do that at the site level. So if I'm in a plant or I'm in an area in a plant, we're using a historian at that level. Okay. But as we move up the stack, so as I move, as I add the, as I apply um, values into my namespace, eventually what I'm doing, and generally this happens once I get to the cloud. So for the most part, what we do is by the time, and it's AWS is our cloud of choice. So Generally, when we get once we get up into um, AWS, once we get into the cloud, then what we're doing is we're streaming all of the event changes into a data lake. Now, the beauty of this technology is that, remember, just like in the automation pyramid or in the automation stack and the videos we've shown, as you move up the stack, you are adding context to data. Okay, this is one of the, this is the fundamental flaw in digital thread. Digital thread assumes that um, data only needs to be added as it goes up and it never needs to come back down, right? So people on the plant floor are never going to be concerned with all the context you added. And if you did, you could give it to them in Power BI or Power Apps or you know some other React application that's going to query your data lake, right? Which is absurd. It's absolutely absurd, right? Um the beauty of this technology is I on the plant floor, I can subscribe to the full namespace. So as I aggregate all the way up, all I have to do is say, I want to subscribe to everything. I want to go to root node and I want to subscribe to everything. And I want you to send me the every up, every update and I can see the whole whole enterprise. Um, two any more, other questions? Yeah, two more questions came in and we got two more minutes. So um, and then if there's any more last minute. Uh, let's do Raphael Amaral. AWS IoT Core doesn't support QoS2. What's your preferred workaround? What you do is use a use a broker technology that supports QoS2, then you stream from that broker into AWS IoT Core. So AWS IoT Core doesn't know that it's not QoS2. What it's doing is it's it's consuming from that broker. And Michael Brown, I'm sure, would answer. Uh, <laughs> I immediately got that. That was right. There you go. Your own that's broker. in their architecture. You'll, if you notice, that's right. in some of their architecture drawings. All right, last one. Um, yep, Dennis. Uh, Dennis, Dennis Muya, for utilities that are legally required to implement Purdue model, for example, by NERCSIP that enforces Purdue model, what is the workaround? Okay, this is a really good question. So the answer is this. You consume from, say, L3 in Purdue into this new IoT infrastructure. 
Okay. And then what you do is you stream up into the cloud from the aggregated infrastructure and you do all your work there. Now, that is not ideal. And then what you do is you go and fight the Purdue battle, right? And, and who writes, who writes NERC SIP? It's members of utility. It's people, it's people who work in the utilities industry. It's not some, you know, some arbitrary person who came off the street who wrote, who wrote the standard. It's, it's the users in the standard. So as you realize that Purdue is becoming deprecated as a, as an organization, as a, as a professional group, you will eventually rewrite your um, NERC requirements. Um, Highbyte's an example, Raphael. Yes, Highbyte. Uh, well, I you wouldn't use Highbyte as your broker. So you would use something like, you would use Highbyte for your data ops, okay? That doesn't mean at the end of the day, Highbyte's not going to have a, you know, um, but you're, you need a scalable broker, okay? The most scalable broker on the market as of, our last analysis, which was in February, was is EMQX. Okay. Uh, the second best uh, is HiveMQ. Um, and then third is going to be Vern. Okay. Um, but a lot of people don't use EMQX because it's a Chinese company. Yada, yada. Totally get it. So if, if you can't do that, then you move to HiveMQ. Those are going to be your most scalable broker options. Now, Cirrus Link makes Chariot SCADA broker, which is, which is, Ju just as scalable as HiveMQ, but cost-wise, it it kind of gets out of whack. Um, any other? Uh, uh, no, I don't. Not that I see of. Um, we got to all the pinned ones, but um, I do want to make a quick shout out. If you're in mentorship or mastermind, um, we're sending out feedback surveys. This is to get a baseline of your customer, our customer satisfaction. Good, indifferent horrible it's it's actually anonymous so feel free to give us your unfiltered feedback check your emails uh, one went out for mentorship one went out for mastermind um, you should have only gotten one survey so if you're in you know mastermind you would have gotten that one yeah and appreciate all the feedback again you know our team's growing we had a, a significant growth last year and we're trying to yeah. scale up to serve our serve the uh serve you guys Den uh, I want to answer Dennis Moya's last question. Do you have a use case that you had to battle the Purdue architecture? Yeah, we got a million of them. Um, there's two more use cases. Next week, we'll do um, use case four and then use case five. I I'm going to have to switch which one I do in use case five to try to cover all the use case questions that, pe that came up. So uh, we'll, try and we'll try and cover it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, everyone. All right. Awesome. See you guys. See you guys next. Uh, see you guys on Friday's Mastermind, or see you guys on next week's Q and A.